Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meets. We are very honored to host today Professor Guy McLean Rogers. Professor Rogers holds a magna cum laude BA degree in classics and political science from the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Rogers earned a first-class honors BA degree in ancient history from the University College London and holds a PhD in classics from Princeton University. Professor Rogers was chairman of the history department of Wellesley College from 1997 to 2001, and then in 2012. Professor Rogers has been the recipient of numerous grants and awards for his research and writing, including ones from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Fulbright Fellowship Program, and the American Philosophical Society. Professor Rogers has authored and edited numerous works, including, but not limited to, The Sacred Identity of Ephesus, Foundation Myths of a Roman City, Alexander, the Ambiguity of Greatness, Roots of the Western Tradition, A Short History of the Ancient World, Rome, the Greek World, and the East, among many others. And today we will be discussing Professor Rogers' fascinating work for the freedom of Zion, the Great Revolt of Jews Against Romans, 66-74 CE. As you can see, it's not a thin book. Uh, it is uh, the, the work on, on the subject matter, uh, the most authoritative work on the subject matter, um, and it is an excellent read and urge all our listeners and viewers, as I did, simply to go on to Amazon. Don't be scared by the thickness of the book. Click of a button, free delivery, and um, I'm sure all readers and listeners will enjoy reading the book. Uh, and again, Professor Rogers, thank you so much uh, for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, actually. Okay. Just to get started, and I know it's a big question, but kind of briefly, what were the main causes behind the Jewish revolt against Rome in 66 of the Common Era? Of course, that's one of the uh, central questions about the revolt. And um, there really isn't a, a simple answer. It's a little bit complicated. Um, in my book, where I start is essentially with the um, Roman uh, decision after the reign of the, the last of the Herodians, uh, a guy named Archelaus, who was the son of Herod the Great. In 6 CE, the Romans decided to send out a, um, a governor to Judea <clears throat> with the title of uh, prefect or prefectus. The man's name was Caponius. And at the same time, um, they decided to take a census there and to uh, obviously follow it up with the imposition of taxes on the population. And um, in response to that, there was a kind of mini rebellion led by a, a guy named Judas, um, who was from the Galilee. And it's pretty clear from um, the works of Josephus that um, the revolt that uh, Judas tried to inspire was um, a kind of nationalistic revolt. Um, really, um, Judas seemed to have the idea that it was impossible for Jews to submit to um, Roman rule especially if it involved um, a census. And so actually um, he had a lot of followers, but it, the revolt was suppressed. And so from about 6 to 41 CE, there were these governors called prefects who um, had a small staff and local auxiliary uh, soldiers under their command to keep order. The most famous of the prefects, of course, was uh, the famous or infamous uh, Punctius Pilate. Um, <clears throat> Pilate, of course, is most uh, well known for 
given the order for the execution of Jesus or Yeshua. Um, but in fact, um, he also almost managed to stir up a, um, a rebellion of Jews by um, repeatedly, for some reason, which is hard to fathom, um, trying to introduce into Jerusalem um, graven images. So I think that um, although overall the record of the prefix was pretty um, pretty mixed, um, you know, there, there wasn't a clear path from six to the eventual revolt. Um, there were some intervening events. After um, 41, the Romans decided that they would um, try another kind of client king. So they basically installed the grandson of, Her of Herod, um, a guy named Agrippa I, as king of Judea and some other uh, territories. And for three years, that worked pretty, pretty well. But he died somewhat unexpectedly in 44. And the Romans turned around and... Um, brought Judea back into the provincial administration, sending out um, a governor with a different title. Um, the name of the, the governors after 44 were procurators. And so procurators were in charge from 44 into the early 60s. And I think that um, events outside of Judea at that point really um, changed the course of the relationship between the Romans and the Jews in Judea. Specifically in 64, there was a terrible fire in Rome, which destroyed three of the districts of Rome completely, and another seven were badly damaged. And as a result of that, the Roman emperor Nero suddenly had huge expenses. He had to try to rebuild um, Rome and also uh, take care of the, the population. And so he sort of um, put the squeeze on provincials, um, both to raise more taxes, but also um, not to be too gentle about the extraction of taxes. And Judea was one of the places that was affected by that. So um, a procurator in 66, a guy named uh, Floris, um, basically um, decided that he was um, empowered to um, not only raise the, the tribute, but also um, if it was slow in coming in to um, simply take money um, from, for instance, the temple treasury. So he um, went to the temple treasury and extracted a large um, amount of money. And there was a, um, a demonstration by civilians in Jerusalem um, against that. And in response, he kind of unleashed the auxiliary soldiers under his command in Jerusalem on the population, and they massacred thousands of um, civilians. And that really, um, I think, was the, the point beyond which um, it was going to be possible for the two sides to simply coexist. And in response to that, uh, some of the temple priests um, decided that they would no longer uh, carry out sacrifices on behalf of the welfare of um, the emperor and the Roman people. So that was kind of a declaration of, of independence. So by the summer of 66, um, in my view, the war had already broken out. So if you step back just for a second, um, from, from 6 CE, when direct Roman rule was imposed on the population of Judea to 66, it's almost, it's 60 years. 
there wasn't a consistent progression of events which would lead you to conclude that um, that a conflict was inevitable. Um, but there definitely were were points um, on that road which kind of I think pushed. Um, people over some Jews over into the rejectionist camp, and eventually, um, with the with the um, you know the outbreak of violence in Jerusalem in '66, we reach a point when um, a, a war was probably um, inevitable. You, you mentioned that um, this was a a policy, at least the the policy of taxes. Uh, stemming from perhaps the fire and, and Nero um, that Rome engaged in throughout the different provinces. Do we see instances of revolts um, against Rome during this, this period before or after? Um, and were they similar to the Jewish revolt? Um, there were revolts. Uh, there was a, um, a kind of revolt, uh, more or less on the border between um, the Roman provinces and uh, what they call Germania or Germany um, in 9 CE. So right at the beginning of the period I was talking about before. And um, in fact, um, that revolt um, led to um, the Romans sort of pulling back from the um, uh, an extended intrusion into uh, what is today Germany. And then there was a another revolt in um, just around the time of the the Jewish revolt in 6061 in Britain, there was a revolt led by a, um, a woman in fact named Boudica. Um, who belonged to a tribe called the Ikeni. Um, but it was a very short uh, revolt. It was uh, squashed very, very quickly. So um, I, I think, in fact, that the Jewish revolt was, was qualitatively different. Um, it lasted uh, much longer. Um, the the resources that were brought to bear by both sides were on a different scale from anything else that we know about. But the most important thing, um, and what I would really stress, is that this revolt um, from 66 to 73 or 74, um, for at least some of the people who were involved in it, was a um a nationalist revolt um a um a serious attempt um to in some sense leave um the roman empire and it's a topic um for a different a different time and a different discussion but the the reality is that um the jews in this area uh that we're talking about were the only people um, to revolt repeatedly from Roman rule. And the historians have posed um, different explanations uh, for why that was the uh, case. I, I'm sort of on the side of th those who think that um, it must have something to do with the fact that of all the people that the Romans kind of encountered during uh, their centuries-long um, effort to both gain and keep dominion over people in the in the Roman world, they were the only ones who had a um, a book, as it were, of their own that was written in their own language that was both kind of a cosmogony but also was a national history. So, so they were different, as it were, from everybody else. It wasn't really, it, it's hard to find a huge amount of evidence for what we would call anti-Semitism or anti-Jew or anti-Judaism um, among Romans, but um, the Romans were sticklers about what they called quies or or peace and also paying taxes. So those were kind of the, you know, the the pressure points between the two sides. 
Who were the various Jewish sectarian groups during this time? What were their positions vis-a-vis -vis the revolt? And um, who survived the revolt from these sectarian groups? Right. So Jew, um, Josephus talks about uh, four different groups. He he talks about the Sadducees, the the Essenes, the Pharisees, and then uh, what he calls a fourth philosophy, uh, the Sicarii. Um, and, um, you know, I think it, in some ways it's kind of impossible to overgeneralize about the attitudes of these different groups toward the, the Romans, because um, if you look very carefully at the identities of people who were involved in the in the revolt, um, there certainly were were people who are sort of identifiable Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees kind of were known as the proponents of uh, oral law, the experts on oral law. There certainly were Pharisees who you know joined the side of the of the rebels and um, most. Uh, sort of remarkably, of course, um, to the extent that we can identify him with a, uh, with any of the sectarian groupings, um, Josephus himself um, certainly had uh, sympathy with um, some Pharisaic ideas. And he originally, of course, was on the side of the rebels. So he's a good example of, of that. Um, unfortunately, um, although there is, um, some limited evidence for the survival of individual members of the, the sectarian group or groupings or philosophies, as Josephus calls them in, in the Greek of his, um, work on the war, as groupings, none of them really survived, um, the only possible exception to that could be um, um, the group of people who um, retrospectively uh, came to be called the Christians. But certainly, you know, in the time period leading up to the revolt, were another um, group or basically were comprised of Jews who were followers of this guy, Jesus. And they did survive. But one of the reasons why they probably survived is that um, they were um, a small, a very small number of people and weren't necessarily based in Jerusalem or um, any of the sort of hotspots um, which became kind of central to the fighting during the war, as far as we know. Did the Jewish rebels um, have a coherent military strategy? Did they win any battles, um, leadership, unified leadership? Yeah, they, they after the, um, the outbreak of the, the fighting, so... Um, after after the the the, the demonstrations against um, the Roman procurator and then the massacres of, of um, civilians, the Roman governor of Syria, a guy named Cestius Gallus, in the summer of sixty six, brought brought a large army of around somewhere between thirty and thirty five thousand Roman soldiers and also auxiliaries and soldiers supplied by local kings down into Judea to kind of snuff out or suppress what was going on there. He um, he was actually ambushed on his way into uh, Jerusalem and then on his way out, and the Romans lost um, more than a Roman's legion worth of infantrymen and uh, hundreds of cavalrymen as well. So um, if you believe that the war started with the rioting, then what happened with Cestius um, is kind of, in my view, the first real battle of the war. And uh, the rebels won that, um, won those two battles sort of hands, hands down. Afterward, 
um, when um, the Romans um, appointed um, a general called Vespasian uh, to lead their um, uh, response to that um, in 67, when the Roman army came down um, from Antioch, a much larger army, um, the the big battles that were fought in the in the Galilee at Jotapata and also Gamla, the Romans won, and then subsequently they, um, of course, uh, besieged uh, Jerusalem in seventy, and then Masada in seventy three or seventy four, all of which um, they. Uh, they successfully um, emerged as victors of. So, so in my book, what I try to do is I try to assess why that was the case. And we know that um, after the initial successes in 66, that the, that the leadership of the rebellion in Jerusalem did um, establish an organization um, for the defense of both Judea and the Galilee. They appointed generals, including Josephus, who was given the job of um, organizing the defense of uh, the Galilee and also Gamla and various other leaders in other places as well. We're not really sure what the, what the strategies of the other leaders were um, in Josephus's case, we know a lot about his strategy because he tells us um, not only in his work on the war, but the, the so-called Jewish antiquities and some other works as well. He talks about how he organized the defense and basically um, to boil it down to its, its essence, his idea was to to fortify the towns and the, the villages um, in the Galilee and at Gamla and elsewhere as well. The problem with that, of course, was that in essence, it kind of drew the Roman armies to these, um, to these places. And of course, the Romans had a huge amount of experience with, um, with sieges. So um, I argue in my book that that was a, a, a kind of critical mistake um, on Josephus's part, if not the, um, the, the leadership in Jerusalem itself. What should they have done in the alternative? And did, did they have military experience? I mean, uh, my sense is that Josephus maybe had some administrative um, experience, but not really military experience yeah it's a great question and actually it's a it's a question that you know if you read a lot of books about the the jewish uh revolt the big revolt it's not one that for some reason a lot of um a lot of scholars or historians have have sort of faced up to and and uh considered the the implications of the the short answer is that both on the leadership le level and also the um, the level of the rank and file of soldiers, they had very little experience, almost no experience. I mean, there were the the young men of Judea and the Galilee. The vast majority of them were were farmers or or traders or um, involved in other kinds of occupations. There wasn't regular military service for most Jews, um, that auxiliary force that I was talking about before, which was kind of a, uh, um, a holdover from the Herodian era, were mostly recruited from the non-Jewish population of the, of the region. So they were the descendants of Greeks who had come there in the wake of Alexander the Great, or people whom Josephus calls Syrians, who are um, arguably sort of Hellenized um, Syrian or other indigenous peoples who served in these local auxiliary armies. So, so what we're looking at is um, a, a revolt led by people by and large with virtually no military or command experience and commanding soldiers 
who very few of whom had military experience as well. And when you when you look at the rebellion in that light, I think it's actually amazing that they did as well as they did um, against the Romans. Um, and it's hindsight is twenty twenty, um, and I think it's um, we have to be kind of careful and respectful because we're talking about human beings here, and um, you know. Uh, warfare, and, which always involves, uh, you know, death and, and destruction. So um, I want to be careful about, about what I have to say here. Um, so I don't know that um, a different strategy would have succeeded, but there were certainly... Um, precedents um, in the history of the people, um, which were alternatives. For instance, of course, what happened under the, the Maccabees, especially during the early period of the Maccabean revolt, um, the strategy was completely different. Um, of course, they were fighting against a different army, the Seleucids. Um, but their strategy was sort of, you know, a guerrilla warfare, a hit and run warfare, um, a war of attrition. And would it have been possible for the rebels in um, 66 to not have um, pursued the wars from behind uh, walls, to have gone out into the countryside and eventually forced the Romans to come to some sort of negotiated um, settlement? I... I think that has to be considered as a as a possibility anyway. Why did Rome expend so many resources to quash this particular revolt? And and if their efforts were so successful, given the numbers that they had and the experience that they had, why was there a second revolt 60 years later? Um so I think that the the answer to the first question is is a little bit complicated as well. Um, I think that the Romans believed um, in the early six days that um, that the number of people kind of in the rejectionist camp were a relatively small number of people who could be controlled by the, the local governor, the procurator, and the auxiliaries under him. And then when that didn't work, they sent down um, Cestius from, from Antioch in Syria with a kind of large army. And again, I think that they thought that, um, you know, that would intimidate the the rebels into um, surrender or negotiated settlement. But as a general rule of thumb, I think um, the, the massacre of thousands of civilians in Jerusalem and just outside of Jerusalem in 66 by um, the, the soldiers of the procurator um, crossed the line and made it almost impossible um, for, for many people who are kind of in between the rejectionists and then the people who were, you know, um, solidly on the Roman side, it made it impossible for them um, to, um, to stay where they, where they were. And um, when I've talked about this before in other contexts, I've, I've just asked people to think about what the consequences of those massacres really were, because, of course, these are men, women, and children that lots of people would have been related to, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And so um, I think that um, that was really the event that, that kind of, um, that set it all off. And afterward, um, it was difficult for people to to go back. And when 
when they roughed up the, the army of Cestius Gallus, then the prestige of the emperor Nero himself was in play. And Nero, Nero wasn't a... Um, wasn't known for his aggressive military policies. And, you know, after the fire in Rome, his own position was sort of in play. And I think that Nero thought that he really had to do something about it. So he sent out a, a kind of seasoned commander of Vespasian with a large army and um, in 68, um, one of the um, one of the Roman commanders, um, again up in the the area around Germany, uh, had had enough of of Nero and revolted, and Nero um, ended up committing suicide, and that kind of opened up a competition for his replacement, and Vespasian had um, the support of. Uh, the soldiers that he was commanding in the Galilee and Judea, and then also legions in Syria and Egypt. So Vespasian came from a relatively humble background. So, you know, winning the war against um, the rebellious Jews became kind of the justification for uh, Vespasian and his family to sort of grab at the 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 throne in Rome, and so I think that that's kind of that explains why it is that they thought that they really had to crush this rebellion, and and finally, you know, this was um, a rebellion that took place within an area that. Nominally, the Romans uh, uh, claimed to control um, the other rebellions. The, the rebellions that I was talking about before were sort of on the close to the periphery. Um, people from outside of the Roman Empire, the Romans weren't um, as concerned about that. But a successful nationalist rebellion from within um, the the borders of the Roman Empire were probably a different story. And and the second part of the question, if they were so successful and used so many resources, why 60 years later do we see a another revolt? Um, the reason I think for that is that um, the Romans were not as success, successful in suppressing this revolt as they believed. Um, Vespasian and um, his sons who succeeded him, Titus and Domitian, thought that um, when they had um, destroyed the temple and eradicated the, the, the sacrificial part of, of the religion from their point of view, that essentially that was the end of the, of the story, that this was over. Um, but what I argue in my book is that, um, unsurprisingly, um, they they didn't get, as it were, um, kind of the the essence of um, this other way of understanding history and the world, um, which was based on, um, as I said before, um, a book, um, and that's something that. I believe that other people who have written about the, the the Jewish revolt have not have not really appreciated um, uh, in a satisfactory way that that book um, with um, the hundreds of commandments um, with the history. Um, was something really unique. So um, another factor I would uh, want to add is that, you know, the destruction of the second temple was a precedented event. It was a terrible event. Um, 
but it was precedented because, of course, the first temple had also been destroyed. So I think that the I think that the Romans misjudged the the significance of their their victory over um, the Jews and the the siege of Jerusalem. Um, they did not snuff out this sort of this nationalist um, uh, ideology. So, so inevitably that led, um, especially because after six, after sixty six, after seventy, um, the Romans went out of their way to kind of militarize um, Judea. Um, and that only aggravated um, relations. So, okay. Aside from Josephus, um, who was, of course, an, an incredible source uh, yeah. of information for for that period, um, are there any other historical accounts of the Great Revolt? What are they? How do they present the Great Revolt? Right. There's, there's, there's nobody like Josephus, in fact. And um, actually, there's, there's nobody like Josephus, of course, about this revolt, but there's nobody like Josephus about any other province in the Roman Empire during the first century. So um, if you, <clears throat> if people um, slog through my, through my book, I think that they'll they'll find um, a lot of places where um, I try to um, use the information that Josephus gives us, but in a critical way. That said, um, there, there is no other source for, for a province in the Roman Empire during the early Roman Empire that gives us so much information and in so much depth as Josephus, period. So he is, he's unique. Um, and because um, in both the, uh, the Jewish war and also the antiquities, he provides information, which in some cases is um, contradictory or sort of changes his story a little bit. He can be a difficult source to use. There are um, a couple of Roman sources which provide um, information about the revolt um, from the Roman point of view, including um, the late first century, early second century Roman historian Tacitus, um, and then a third century Roman historian called Cassius, Cassius Dio. But you know these are these are adding some um, details about uh, the revolt. They don't they don't fundamentally change the story of the of the revolt. So so for instance, um, we were talking before about the the major battles of the revolt, um, the siege of Jotapata that that Josephus was in charge of the defense of, and then Gamla, which he uh, witnessed, and then um, Jerusalem, which he also um, witnessed uh, in, in 70, we would, we would know very, very little about what went on in those places. We would have archeological evidence, but but material evidence doesn't speak for itself. It has to be made to speak. Um, and so what we try to do, of course, is to uh, use all the, all the evidence um, that, we, that we have. So Josephus is um, indispensable, no question about it. Uh, we know that um, Rome celebrated this victory and we talk about it in, in detail. How do they celebrate the victory? And uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the claim in the book is that this revolt changed not only Jewish history, but changed Roman history. So if we can focus first from the Roman perspective. 
How do they celebrate it? And why do you claim that it changed Roman history? Right. So um, actually, in the immediate aftermath of the, the siege and conquest of Jerusalem in 70, a year later, uh, Vespasian and Titus were, were granted um, a, a triumph in Rome by the, um, the Senate and the, the people. So, um, so what that involved was a, um, a kind of procession going around the streets of Rome. And there are precedents for these uh, triumphal processions going back into the um, Roman Republican period. So that involved um, um, you know, bringing captives from, um, from Jerusalem and marching them through the streets and, and also having sort of um, wagons with like um, big um, placards on them and uh, scenes showing scenes from the revolt and and then also carrying booty from the from the war, um, including <clears throat> one of the menorahs from the uh, from the temple and. Uh, sort of um, other other things, a, a copy of the law and going a, a, along um, a route through the city with a large crowd there. And um, at the end of it, in a, a sort of ghastly um, scene in Roman practice, um, executing one of the, the leaders of the revolt, a guy named Simon um, um, uh, in a prison, uh, at the foot of the Capitoline Hill in Rome. So, um, uh, actually, I'm not sure whether a lot of your um, listeners know this or not, but in fact, Rome had, during this period, a large population of Jews. And one of the ways that in which my book uh, differs uh, strongly from um, other um, relatively recent um, books about uh, the revolt is um, I'm pretty sure that um, that there would have been a lot of Jews in the in that crowd who saw this triumphal procession and um, to me um, you know th that was a very significant event um, in Jewish history and not a happy one um, afterward, the Romans, um, specifically Vespasian and, and his sons, used the revolt um, to um, propagandize the legitimation of their dynasty. And so they embarked upon a building program in Rome. They first, uh, the first thing that they completed was a, um, a so-called temple of peace in which some of the uh, temple treasury treasures were, were brought and then displayed along with other um, um, artworks uh, from around the Roman Empire. And then um, two other monuments, which um, don't really uh, come across the radar of people very often is being related to the revolt, but are incredibly significant. Of course, the, the Colosseum in Rome, or what's called the Colosseum, originally was called the Flavian Amphitheater. And <clears throat> we happen to know from a, um, an inscription, which was restored um, by a classical scholar, which shows that um, that the the Colosseum was built at least in part, um, supposedly from spoils of the war itself. So, um, I mean, it's it's almost impossible, I think, to overestimate the significance of that for uh, for Jews, for Romans, um, for visitors to uh, Rome for literally the last 2000 years. I mean, Rome is this, the Colosseum is the symbol of Rome. And almost 
none of the, I go to Rome all the time. I've been there probably 50 times. Um, very few of the millions of people who, who go to the Colosseum understand that that is a victory monument over, um, over the Jews. Um, that was its original purpose is to celebrate the, the victory of the Flavian dynasty over the Jews in this war. Um, it was built, as I say, at least in part using those, um, using the treasures um, from Judea. And then in the Circus Maximus, another very famous um, monument, um, a few years later, a few years after the dedication of the Flavian Amphitheater, there was a triumphal arch put up, not the, the Arch of Titus in the Roman Forum, but a much bigger arch um, at the Circus Maximus. And there was an inscription there, which was lost, but it was copied. And so we know what it said, which claimed that, um, that Titus had um, been the first um, ever to conquer Jerusalem, which was a lie. Uh, Jerusalem had been conquered several times before. Um, but obviously, the Circus Maximus was a, um, um, a, a monument that was uh, visited by millions of people in the ancient world who saw that inscription. So, um, so the, this war and its outcome was, was used to remind the Roman population and to visitors for centuries, really, um, of this great triumph over um, the rebellious Jews and um, with all of the, the consequences. So, so I think that, um, you know, this really changed relations between Romans and Jews, um, if not permanently, then uh, definitely for hundreds of years, especially for the for the worse. Um, so it's an unfortunate um, chapter and kind of one of those turning point chapters in history. From the perspective of, as you said, we're we're almost two thousand years um, from the event, from the great the great Jewish revolt, and we're sitting now in two thousand twenty three. Uh, we here in Israel just celebrated the seventy fifth anniversary of the modern state of Israel. As a historian, as a scholar, how how do you view the more recent events from the prism of two thousand? years ago? It's, I think it's um, kind of um, a, a bittersweet perspective because it's, it's impossible, I think, reading the, <clears throat> the pages of Josephus not to um, not to be kind of moved by um, what a terrible series of events he's describing. And one of the things that I try to try to do in my in my book is to um, in my in my own kind of small way to, to personalize this story in, this, in the same way, for instance, if you go to Yad Vashem and you, you see the exhibitions um, which um, are focused on the, the stories of, um, of individuals so that they their lives and what happened to them are not lost to history. And um, as I said before, I look at what happened um, 
in this revolt as something which has a uh, a broader and longer history as well. The Romans, um, in particular, the the Roman dynasty of the Flavians, claim to have won that war comprehensively, and they propagandized that that victory. And um, Josephus, to the extent that he was um, somebody who um, understood um, both the um, the context within which the revolt had broken out because he was a participant in it and was on the side of the rebels, but then also went over to the Roman side. I think he he saw the tragedy of what happened. But I also think that he, um, of course, couldn't know um, that there would be um, a subsequent history. And, you know, as I kind of walk around Israel and and see what's happened uh, there, um, you know, I think a different interpretation of the long-term effects of all of this is, is possible. And that's why um, at, the, <clears throat> at the very end of my book, I focus on the significance of, of the book and the words of the book and how that has made it possible um, for a tradition, which is the only one really that we have that is active from the ancient world into the modern world is still alive and, and vibrant. So, so I see the arc of this, of all of this, a little bit differently, I think, than, than other scholars who have um, written about it. This has been absolutely fascinating, and there's, there's so much to cover, and perhaps at a, a later date we'll tackle some other issues related to, to the, the Great Revolt, and again, urge all our listeners and and, and um, readers and, and followers to, uh, to take a look at um, Professor Rogers' absolutely fascinating work for the Freedom of Zion, the Great Revolt of Jews Against Romans, 66 74 CE of the Common Era. And again, Professor Rogers, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.